Are we ready? Okay. Set. There are donuts in the kitchen. <laughs> Wait, who wrote Anastasia that? just said donuts. We gotta record. We gotta record. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm good. Okay. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the unquestionably young, definitely hip, and undoubtedly <laughs> lay editors of America Media. The lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hello. And Olga Segura. Hi, guys. Yes, so we got we got some adverbs this week from C. Sorrentino. Um, so how are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm Pretty feeling good. great. Yeah. We've got a really good drink in front yeah. of us right what are, now. What, what's on tap, Zach? Today we're drinking gin martinis, and actually I learned something from our guest uh, this week, Scott Detrow, he measures how much vermouth to put in his martinis with the bottle cap of the bottle, which is brilliant because brilliant. you yeah. only want a little bit. Yeah. Or if you're Ashley, just or just gin <laughs> <laughs> and a and a twist of lime, which I yeah. had to Google. I wasn't sure if that just meant like squeezing some lime juice in there, but no, it's like doing a that plot fancy. Twist of lime. <laughs> yeah, no, you gotta like peel the yeah, which the yeah. lime peel so. As Zach mentioned, we've got Scott Detrow, host of the NPR Politics podcast. Um, later on, we'll be talking to him about podcasting, covering Congress in the age of Trump and more. And after that, we've got our Constellations and Desolations, where we show you where we did or didn't find God this week. And you should stick around even if you don't like politics and you're trying to stay sane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a Fordham grad, so yeah. he's got some good Jesuit insights. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. All right, but first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week, so you don't have to. First, we have Mike Pence. He was speaking at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast in D.C. on Tuesday, um, and there he said that Catholics or American Catholics have a great ally in President Trump and went on to highlight some of the areas of agreement between the Catholic Church and the Trump administration. Did you guys tune in? Did not, but I uh, run our Facebook page here, and we posted this article. And part of the reason that we're bringing this, that you yeah. you picked the story, was that more... Did, did people have some thoughts about people this? People had very strong feelings. <laughs> I'm not even sure that... Well, we ran it with the, the promo text, Vice President Mike Pence, American Catholics have an ally in President Trump. Which he, which he said. Which, which he said. It's, it's a literal a quote. quote. Yep. So, and that brought out very strong feelings. Uh, 675 of them, in fact. Whoa! Wow. Which okay. is... We don't have the post before that just got like eight <laughs> and then before that two. So yeah. for perspective. Yeah. Lots of comments. And and were most people saying that they disagreed with the vice president? You know, this is actually the most use I've seen out of the angry reaction that I've ever seen on our Facebook page. <laughs> I'm not even, I wasn't even sure that most of our audience knew how to choose between the likes and the sads and the angry. Oh, whoa. But... The, like the vast majority, over 500 of them yeah. were angry. Yep. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, so, well, the, I will say Mike Pence r- tried to find some common ground. Uh, he introduced himself uh, using his, he, he said, I'm Mike Michael Christopher Pence, and that was his confirmation name because okay. he was raised Catholic. He later became an evangelical, um, and he he told the people gathered there that it felt like a homecoming. Um, yes, so there's that. There is that. <laughs> yeah. So the reason people might have been were angry, ang- they were, were, were no, definitely no angry. <laughs> the people. It was less. I think it was less about what he said and and more about what he didn't say. What he didn't mention was. 
immigration or uh, environmental protection, social safety net. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, the Catholic bishops, the Catholic church has been very strong on and and has been critical of the um, Trump administration uh, for their policies in these areas. And those those did not come up. What's next, Zach? Okay. So I've got an awesome, I can't even, I can't even take I've got this an awesome weird, weird story. Uh, I'm bringing this one because I love how weird Catholics are, even today. So a piece of Don Bosco, St. Don Bosco, uh, you know, famous for working with children and had, a, you know, the Salesians find their patronage in this saint. Is he uh, Italian? He is Italian. Bosco. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so a piece of his brain was stolen from a church in Castelnuovo, which is near Turin, last Friday, June 2nd. And there was a glass case where they had a piece of his brain. Because that's what Catholics do. Yes. If if you're like famous for being holy or anything, as soon as you die, we're going to cut up your body. So anyway, a thief stole this from a church in Castelnuovo and the archbishop... Do you think uh, it was like they stole it because they're super Catholic and they want it or they thought they could sell it? I just don't really see the motivation here. But I mean, Catholics really are into I mean, this is the type of thing you think would have happened in uh like medieval times yeah. or right. even in the early church. But yeah, you yeah. know, the faith is still faith is happening. alive and strong. Yep. It's great. And so uh <laughs> Archbishop Cesare Nozilia of Turin uh, released a statement in which he said, you can take away a relic of Don Bosco, but you can't take away Don Bosco from the church or the world. All right. Um, up next, I brought this story because I love that the Associated Press thought the most important part of the Pope's participation in a Pentecost Mass was that he's tone deaf. Um, so apparently the Pope has said before that he cannot sing, but he made the effort to sing when he was at this Mass with a bunch of charismatic Catholics um, and even, like, raised his hands in the air. So, like, like, you just don't care. <laughs> <He don't. laughs> so as someone who has been told that they should sing a little less loudly at Mass, I really appreciated the Pope putting himself out there and singing despite his tone deafness. <laughs> yeah, I think people always wonder what they would say to the Pope if they ever got a chance to meet with him. I think I would probably just tell him, listen, Pope Francis, I've never let my inability to sing stop me. That's true. <laughs> so please get back in the game. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. What's next, Olga? So on Pentecost Sunday, during his homily, Pope Francis talked about the two sort of recurrent temptations that the Catholic Church is facing. And he stated that one of the reasons we are facing these temptations as Catholics is because we are more prone to kind of associate with specific groups or political parties. Um, And he specifically said, we become Christians of the right or the left before being on the side of Jesus. Um, So I read the story and it was kind of interesting because Ashley brought the Mike Pence national breakfast story and hearing him describe Trump as an, as an ally for all Catholics. um, It was very difficult for me to sort of reconcile that with my faith. So I was kind of thinking like, what is Pope Francis asking us to be apolitical? Should we completely remove this from our Christianity? What do you guys think? Well, this is also the approach that America has, right? Oh, yeah. No. So when our current editor-in-chief, uh, Father Matt Malone, came on, he he wrote this article called Pursuing the Truth in Love, in which he said that at America, we are not, we're not going to call people conservative Catholics or uh, liberal Catholics. We're, we're just Catholic. And, and, um, I, 
I think that's important because the terms left and right, they come from American politics. They don't come from the church. And so when you import those terms, there's a lot of baggage that comes with it that just doesn't make sense to the Catholic imagination. This really resonated with me as someone who does not. (laughs) I I agree with the Pope and I agree with America's policy on this. I, I don't describe myself as a liberal or conservative Catholic. I'm a Catholic. Um, and I can't really th- find my place in the right and the left in U.S. politics either. Um, yeah. What I would say is that uh, you can take, you know, not everything on the left is going to gel with your Christianity and everything on the right is going to gel with your Christianity. And you should use your Christian faith to develop a method of self-critique for that side in order to make it better and closer to the gospel and advance the kingdom of God. Anyway. Zach finally broke out of his conservative bubble. He's very happy about that. <laughs> That's really why we brought this yeah, story. The bar, evidently, yeah, I've been getting a lot of feedback that I play like a staunch conservative on this podcast. And <laughs> evidently the bar is if you don't mess with Ouija boards and you hate ugly church vestments, that makes you a staunch conservative. It's Jesuitical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. What's our next story, Zach? Oh, so... (laughs) Speaking of Zach... (laughs) So this next story, it's sort of a perennial question. Is the devil real? Uh, The Jesuit uh, Superior General, Father Arturo Sosa, uh, gave an interview recently where a couple lines of it were picked up and commented on in a few places... Uh, where he said, we have formed symbolic figures such as the devil to express evil. Social conditioning can al- also represent this figure since there are people who act in an evil way because they are in an environment where it is difficult to act to the contrary. And so a couple of people picked that up saying and said things like, oh, the Jesuits don't believe in the devil anymore. I had some <laughs> guy on Twitter yell at me and say that. Um, and I'd, not to make this like a say who's right and who's wrong, but it is an interesting question is like, what, where do our images of the devil come from? Uh, what do we mean by that? Because, I mean, frankly, we and we checked with our Jesuit formation director, uh, Father Eric Sandrup. No one who's trained as a Jesuit would straight up say... At, Pope Francis talks about the devil right. all the time. All the time. <laughs> like, and, and as a person, not as a... Like, he talks about the devil in a very, like personified way. Right, right. And there's no dispute about that. Like, Catholic teaching tells us that the devil does exist, you know? Um, But you were saying people... Well, you know, often it's... But it's also not the guy with the horns who lives in hell and punishes you for your sins. That's not... That honestly comes from more Dante than it does, you know, the Bible or even uh, Catholic teaching or or something. I read a book uh, a few years back on... Uh, this it was called Inventing Hell by John Sweeney. Any some of the points that he makes is that there is little agreement among Christians before Dante about the nature and extent of what we call hell. Um, Dante borrowed from a lot of different areas to try and illustrate a dramatic point, and then even after that, people are picking up on Dante and painting things, and eventually those all flicker down into our cultural imaginations of what we think the devil is like and what hell is like. But I mean the devil is in the bible like right. that's it's in scripture right yeah you see it in ezekiel in the book of job the book of revelation like it's not something coming from dante or from john milton's paradise lost which full disclosure 
I didn't read the Bible until post-Fordham. So the first image of Satan that I had was what I was reading in Paradise Lost, you know? Um, and now in preparation for, I've mentioned in the past, like I've been reading scripture more often and seeing that is very, to me, it's very, it's interesting to see, like, it's not the Lucifer that Milton describes. There's actual biblical text that shows this, but, you know? But what are the, some of the descriptions of the Bible? Because, you know, in the um, Jews today do not have the same idea about hell or satan as christians do mm-hmm. so when you say it's in job or ezekiel it's it's not the same satan that has come down to us so do you what right what like when in ezekiel we see satan described as an angel who gets expelled from heaven whereas in the book of revelation he's described as this giant dragon and then referred to later on as the devil or satan so it does differ um you know yeah. what do, like what do you guys think of when you think of the devil because like you say like yeah, it's not the red guy with horns, but if it's not the red guy with horns, what? Is? I think it's I think when you're trying to discern the movements of God in your own life, there's always that something else that tells you you're not good enough, you're not accepted. This was out of, you know, someone said something to you and they said it to you because they hate you and you're going to be rejected or <clears throat> So the devil is just self-doubt? That seems kind of like... But it's not... I mean, the, the idea <laughs> is that, you know, these we believe in a transcendent reality where... In the same way that, like, when we're consoled, you know, we have... It, it, some might call it affirmation, but, like, there's a movement of God's own spirit where you feel close to God and connected to God. Um, the converse of that is, you know, there is something that tells you that you aren't loved. And that's usually what it comes down to is some form of that statement. And it can be super convincing. Someone said that original sin is the only Christian doctrine that you just have to like read a newspaper to be convinced of. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, I don't, I don't think it takes a ton of theological hula hoops to believe in the devil. But the devil, the devil as a person, like an actual, like I, a fallen angel that's actually a person I think those acting are, in the world. I think those are metaphysical questions that I don't care about. <laughs> okay but like i i don't know like because the reason father sosa came under fire and was for he used the language of symbol um which i think some of that gets lost in translation but well, like, and it's, there's uh, catholics mean something very different when they say symbol yeah than the rest of the world yes but i think even the way you what you described as the devil does not sound like a person to me it sounds like a psychology or or a, a spirit, I don't know. Well, I, it's not like a psychological thing where it's totally contained within yourself. There is something external, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's a, it's an embodied person, right? Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we don't think of Michael the Archangel as an embodied person even, right? So, I mean, what, I mean, do angels, what sexual organs do angels have? I don't know. Those know. are, those are not, <laughs> I, I, I think know. those are. I just find it very confusing. Like, <laughs> I, those are my, those aren't actually at the top of my list for questions <laughs> for God. And now we are joined by Scott Detrow. He covers Congress for NPR and is one of the hosts of the NPR Politics Podcast. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoy your podcast. So it's Thank fun to you. Be on. That's really great That's to hear. Exciting to hear. I, we're, we actually were all kind of curious how you yeah. stumbled upon it. <laughs> how did I? Um, 
I uh, I think I follow multiple like America Magazine Twitter accounts. Okay. Uh, so uh, you are one of my top sources for Pope Francis news. Uh, so I think somebody retweeted and I went hmm and uh, and went from there. But the I, Jim I like bump. <laughs> yeah, uh, listen to a few episodes. I crossed the uh, subscribe threshold oh, wow. uh, about a month or so ago. Wow. So, nice. You know, thanks. Enjoy it. All right, and, well, th- and thank you to playing for playing bartender. Yes. Oh yeah, too. Yes. no problem. I hope this works out. No, these are these martinis are martinis. delicious and strong. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a page out of the NPR Politics podcast and give this a timestamp because we're not recording <laughs> on our regular Wednesday. We're recording on Friday, June second at four thirteen p.m. So things if anything, might, things might have things changed. Might change. <laughs> things probably will have changed. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we'll we'll start with that, Scott. What has it been like to cover? politics in the Trump era. (laughs) Yeah. When do you sleep? (laughs) You know, it's funny. Like, I go back to um, last year's entire campaign was crazy, clearly. But, like, the last month or so, things just kept ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And we're all thinking, okay, November's almost here. Things will calm down. And then our boss had to send out a note saying, reminder, don't everybody take three weeks off at the same time all at once because news will still be happening after the election. We're like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. (laughs) But basically, ever since Election Day, we have been stuck at this, like, last week of October pace of news. And if anything, it's only increased over the last month. So it's a lot. And you basically spend all of your time staring at your phone and waiting for the next push alert to come from one of your competitors or just trying to monitor what is happening. And every day brings a new, you know, <laughs> surprising challenge. Yeah. Is that is that a sustainable pace? No. Oh. No. Okay, so <laughs> no. what's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> um, in terms of like big picture America or my personal life? <laughs> I left it open-ended for you. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just as like a human being, I feel like the important thing is to carve out some point somewhere, whether it's a certain point at night or like one or two days of the weekend where you just do your – like you obviously have to check in at some point, but just saying like, okay – I'm not going to be a Twitter person today. I'm going to like be outside or just have a nice day and kind of ignore the news. And the news will be there, you know, when I get home. Now, people talk a lot about not letting things normalize. But mm-hmm. you said we're, we're going to get used to this yeah. pace of news. Do you think that's what, – what's the conversation in the discourse going to look like once we've – are we going to ignore huge things? Because right now I feel like there's so much good journalism yeah. that people are missing out on because everything – because – Trump is just sucking the air out of everything. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and rightly so. I mean, he is the president of the United States. What he says matters. What he tweets matters. I still think you have to pay close attention to what he's doing. And he's certainly, like, carrying out his job in a way that we have not seen before and that is, like, massively disrupting on a whole bunch of different levels the entire Washington and national and international ecosystem. But yeah, I think on one hand, when he tweets fake words in the middle of the night, like, (laughs) it's notable, and you have to pause and say, it's very remarkable that a president would do this. But at the same time, it's not like he tricked anybody. Like, this is who he was when he ran for president. This has been a constant thing. Like, weird, out-of-nowhere tweets have been kind of his brand for a while now. So I think you say... Sure is notable that a president did this, but then you kind of move on with your life because it's not worth thinking about it for hours on end because it's just it's just what's normal for this person and this this administration. Can we get an official NPR pronunciation of that word? Kofefe. <laughs> Kofefe. <laughs> Thanks. How do you 
maintain your passion for journalism when you see various polls that are talking about trust in mainstream media is sort of at an all-time low. How do you keep your faith in what you do? I think that the idea that the people being written about don't like the news media is not a new thing. You know, uh, I'm uh, reading a biography of Richard Nixon right now, and it's interesting on a whole bunch of different levels. But you just happened to pick that up. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed timely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they have, of course, the the Oval Office transcripts of Richard Nixon, and they have him just after he was reelected ranting to an aide about how the media is the enemy and they hate him because he won this election they thought he shouldn't win and they hate him because he knows how to get around them and message on his own terms and kind of get through their filter. And it was like word for word the exact same thing that you you hear about from President Trump and I thought that was interesting. But um, in terms of the, the way that it's being made a personal thing and in terms of like the animosity... I think that makes it all the more important to take a step back and make sure you're being calm and collected and thoughtful about what you're reporting. Because I think the the thing that makes journalism important is that you're bringing people facts. You're not telling people what to think. There are roles within journalism of giving your opinion, but I'm a firm believer in in objectively sticking to the facts. Like I feel like it's our job to bring you like a plate of facts or whatever, <laughs> and let you make of it what you will and, and argue about it and say what's right and wrong. But I think we all need to be, you know, reading from the same page in terms of what the facts are. I don't think that means you're you're normalizing or you're wimping out on your role, because I think what your role is as a journalist is to report the news and let other people do all the other things that come after that. Uh, So you got your start in public radio, I think, at Fordham University. So I'm wondering if going to a Jesuit school at all influenced how you approach um, your vocation as a journalist? Yeah, uh, I went to a Jesuit high school also, uh, Marquette High School in Milwaukee. Um, And then I went to Fordham. And I think so. I was actually just talking about this the other day with somebody. And I feel like one of the most important kind of like Jesuit school values – that I I use every day, whether I think about it or not, is the idea of empathy. Because I feel like it's critical when you're writing a story about somebody to understand it from their perspective. You know, what are they thinking about this issue? Why do they care about this issue? What is their point of view? And I think Mm -hmm. that leads to better reporting, and I think it leads to fairer reporting. So what's the value of public radio? I think sell me on it. Yeah, I think <laughs> Pledge Week is <laughs> over. Yeah. You know, like you need to know what the news is. You need to know the things that happened that day and you need to know how they connect to the other things in the world and the other things that happened in the distant uh past and the not so distant past. It's it's giving you first of all information and second context. I think increasingly uh a lot of news is yelling at you and telling you why you're wrong and why the other people are wrong and um, coming at things with a point of view and ignoring facts that don't fit into that preconceived worldview. And I don't think that's healthy for anybody. First of all, I think that if you get all your news from a source like that, you probably have high blood pressure. And I think uh, more importantly, well, it's important to have low blood pressure. That is but more importantly, <laughs> uh, you don't have a, a, a full sense of what's going on in the world. You know, you, you say uh, putting the news in context of what has happened before one of the things i love about working at america is it's been around 
since 1909. So whenever something happens, we can always like look back and be like, oh, what did we say about this yeah. in 1945? Do you feel like... Sometimes does... we try to hide <laughs> that, what we said about something. Don't, don't look what we said well. about women's suffrage. <laughs> um, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought the Jesuits were cool. Ooh. You know, we were just unsure how it was going to work <laughs> yeah, out. we didn't come down. Cautiously skeptical. <laughs> we, yeah, we were... Riding the fence on that women's suffrage. Yeah. yeah. Um, but d- d- do you feel like NPR has that institutional memory and does it inform how you how you work oh sure i mean even just the co-workers i think one of my favorite things because i'm somebody like a lot of people who work at npr who grew up listening to npr who knew pretty early on that's where i wanted to work and have listened to these people and had these like imaginary versions of them in my head for so long isn't it so weird when you see the face for the first time (laughs) (laughs) but on the on the political desk especially uh it's so great to have both in the podcast and also just walking over and talking to at their desk people like Marlies and who who covered the entirety of the first Clinton well the only Clinton administration now <laughs> but last year during Hillary Clinton's campaign saying her saying well this came up with Hillary Clinton in 1992 and here's what happened and here's what I think I wrote about it at the time and here's how Hillary Clinton has changed on this issue from the early 90s to the mid 90s to her Senate career till now and and stuff like that is just great so what drew you to audio journalism? I think it was actually almost a mistake at first. Uh, so my dad is a, a career longtime uh, commercial radio person. He uh, he mm-hmm. works a couple days a week still on 1010 Wins actually here in New York, uh, which is very different than NPR. So radio... In what, in what way? It's, uh, it's an all-news station that's just kind of aggressively, loudly, fast-paced, telling you all the headlines. Uh, A little higher metabolism than NPR, probably. Yeah. (laughs) So radio was always like a thing in my life, but it wasn't something I was especially interested in. I knew I was really interested in politics and news, and I knew I liked writing and wanted to do something like that. But then I was at Fordham, and at first I worked on like the student newspaper, very like campus-focused news, like, oh, go write something on the student senate or whatever. <laughs> um, and then WFUV was on campus, and that is like a, a full-blown NPR member station where, you know, adults actually work, people actually listen to the station, but they do have opportunities for students to come in and report. And one of the first assignments they they gave me was to go to a Hillary Clinton press conference when she was a senator. And I thought like, wow, this is... There are other reporters here. There are TV cameras here. That's Hillary Clinton. Like, this is like covering the actual news. And that was really exciting. So I just like jumped into that full blown. And then, you know, by the time I was looking for jobs, I realized that I actually only had public radio clips. But at that point, I was so into the idea of it anyway, that that I went, I stuck at it and ended up working for about five years at a Pennsylvania public radio station. And so after Fordham, your beat kind of was energy in the environment. Is that right? A little bit. I kind of I kept hopping back and forth between politics and covering energy, which okay. in a week like this week is yeah, really so I was great to have lived in both trying worlds. Trying to segue. Yeah. So how do you yeah. feel about Paris. this Paris news? Oh, and this actually can bring us back to uh, Catholic world, too, yeah. because I think um, – well, the Paris news, I think, is like an enormous deal and not that big of a deal. It's just like an enormous deal that the United States is walking away from the entire international community on an issue that outside of the United States, there's basically across the board acceptance that this is not only something that needs to be acted on, but it's, it might already almost be too late to act on mm-hmm. it. Like the world needs to take these steps aggressively. But the United States made clear this week that it's not interested in doing that. I think it's not as big of a deal 
because this decision was already made earlier on by President Trump by walking away from the EPA regulations that that we're going to kind of reach those goals with. And it's also not as big of a deal because cities and states and a lot of the technology is getting to the point where it's lowering its carbon footprint anyway. So I think the U.S. still will get a good chunk of the way there to where the Paris Accord wanted it to get. But clearly, it's not going to get all the way there now. You said this brought us back to the Catholic world. What Mm -hmm. did you mean by that? I wrote a lot at the time about the, the Pope's environmental encyclical. And just one of the most interesting things to me was the way, like, clearly, you cannot graft the Catholic Church onto one political party or the other here in the U.S. as much as people like to. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure on both you, sides. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you guys have lots of thoughts on how that fits and doesn't fit. But it's just been so interesting to me over the last few years how it's not the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party that kind of rushes to, to link up with the Catholic Church and the Vatican. And uh, when it came to the Clean Power Plan, specifically the EPA regulation that that was was going to force a lot of states to shift away from coal and to renewables and natural gas. How the Obama administration worked so hard to to get the popes to get the pope on board as a uh, as an advocate and as someone they could point to. You had Gina McCarthy, the EPA administrator, going over to the Vatican. You had all these different conferences they'd all appear at, and then um, I forget the exact wording, but at the White House ceremony when Pope Francis was here. He basically endorsed the clean power plan standing next to Obama. And I thought, like, wow, this is so interesting. I never thought I would see a pope standing there endorsing this Democratic president's big policy proposal. So, you know, the way that you have Bernie Sanders flying over to the Vatican right before a big primary last year, it's just interesting how the how the political calculus has shifted. And it's the Democrats who are all about that. What do you think it is about Pope Francis that uh, maybe he's shifting the political landscape? you guys would know more than me, but I think it's the way that he's not necessarily changing any policies on anything, but he's changing what he thinks is worth like focusing time and attention on. Mm -hmm. And, but I think taking like a big picture view that, that puts like social justice issues and environmental issues at the forefront, I think that kind of shifts it. I don't know if it's a scale or whatever the best mental image of things that are more like Republican and things that are more Democrat, I think kind of the, the emphasis is, is the direction is turned at the moment. It seems to, to the things that Democrats feel like are more issues that they can actively campaign on, you know, like, uh, you know, wealth distribution type issues, social justice type policies, environmental policies specifically. And immigration. I forgot specifically immigration, yeah. I think, is one of the most powerful. Oh, yeah, sure. But it's uh, – I uh, I was talking to a Republican political consultant who who I've known for a while who's who's Catholic. And he said, you know, I'm not disagreeing with any of that, but it's very frustrating to me, he was saying, that, that the same Democrats who are like, here's the U.S., you know, Conference of Catholic Bishops. Here's their statement. Where are you on this, Paul Ryan? And he's like, hey, they're making the same statements about, you know, abortion, abortion issues or whatever. And, yeah. and that group of people certainly isn't rushing to retweet their statements on that. So, both, but of course, that's the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's not a new thing. It's just, yeah. I think that's more Republicans finding themselves on defense on that issue more than they're used to. Yeah. So does that make a difference then if both sides are doing it? Does that, in effect, <laughs> neuter the church's voice? I don't know. Do you I don't think, know. I think you, you could flip side that it magnifies it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think it depends on issue to issue because nobody – I don't think anybody is like out there with a scorecard saying, well, you disagree on six issues and agree on four and therefore, right. you know, we're not oh, going to There are definitely Catholic groups out there well, yeah, 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 <laughs> have a scorecard. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> Not a life I want to live. <laughs> um, so you can feel free to ignore this question because it's like more personal. Okay. But d- does your if if there is like a prayer life or a faith life mm-hmm. that like helps you keep your sanity during all of this crazy work that you're having to do? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great question. I think it's true. Um, I you guys were talking maybe two or three episodes ago about coming out of Catholic environments and whether or not that kind of strengthened or like um, or weakened your faith afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was like a really real conversation to me because you know I went to Catholic high school, I went to Catholic college, and then all of a sudden I was out in the wild. And it's not like this ingrained part of your daily life and you can choose to embrace it or choose to not. And I think there was like a long period of time where I chose to not embrace it. And then a few years ago, I started to kind of get back into it slowly and then more consistently. But I feel like there was definitely an upgrade in terms of my engagement with being Catholic and the the kind of conscious decision to go to mass and make it a part of like your daily life. That just happens I think any campaign this would happen because just like the lifestyle of covering a campaign is so unnerving and so disorienting where like that cliche thing of waking up and not knowing where you are started to happen to me and like all the time because you're you're flying to two or three states a day. You're in the same kind of arena settings, hotel settings, like suburban settings. And there were days where I woke up and I'm like, Am I in Ohio or Colorado? <laughs> uh, I don't. And it like it takes like a minute. It's like a really frightening minute yeah. of like, where the hell am I? <laughs> um, but then like just this campaign in particular, like things were so negative and so disorienting. And there was that spate of just like violence in the summer when there were multiple shootings and terror attacks. And it was just like a very destabilizing process that I felt like. I started to really make a point to like to go to mass on like Sunday evenings and just like kind of view that as it's almost like a, a not to trivialize it, but the same way of like getting away from your phone and just mm-hmm. kind of carving out some time for yourself. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was like a very stabilizing period in my life and it has continued to be with just like this world shaking news happening every day. Yeah. All right. Should we ask? Uh, yeah. We have we have the question we ask everyone. Yeah. That kind of tends to stump a lot of our guests, surprisingly. I'm prepared, but yeah. I'm still not prepared, actually. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. This is going to be a game time decision. All, All right. right. Finish your drink. Okay. <laughs> make another if you need. If it'll make answering easier. All right. So if you could canonize yes. anyone, who would it be? You know the caveats. Yeah. 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 Stephen Colbert got taken already. Yeah. Um... I would have surprised myself saying this like six months ago, but I will go with J.R.R. Tolkien, who is not someone I was actually really on board with his writing until the last year or so when I started to pick it up and started to kind of get deeper into it. I was going to ask, did he come out with a new book? (laughs) Actually, he did. That's right. You're right. He's always coming out with new books that his son is just like repurposing. But yeah, there was like a, actually there was a book review on NPR, like J.R. I was like, what the hell is this? Like, oh, okay. He's like, dad wrote this on a napkin. Might as well publish it. (laughs) I rewrote it 19 times myself. But I think that he does such like a, a great job of kind of taking the basic level values of Christianity and Catholicism and kind of turning them into a bigger picture story where you can mm-hmm. kind of like get takeaways from it. And right after the election, I read a biography of him that was like this joint biography of him and like C.S. Lewis and that whole like crew of people. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was like, again, I keep saying disorienting because it's the best way to think about that campaign. It was just... 
And especially right after the election, when like so many things I thought I knew about politics were just wrong, and I was just wrong, and I didn't know what to make of the world. So I ended up like I spent three or four days like in a cabin in upstate New York, and I brought that book with me and I was reading it. And it was just this thinking of like, for those guys, living where they lived at the time they lived, the world every day was horrifying. You know, you had World War One, then you had World War Two, then you had the Cold War. But they were able to kind of carve out this this confident, stable life because of their religion and because of their writing and because of just their 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 worldview, where they could kind of like create their own safe spaces. It's not to use a loaded term now, but that's <laughs> a good way to think about it. To create their own stability in a very frightening world. And I don't know, I, I just thought a lot about that at a period that I felt like I don't know what's what right now. And um, plus, I'm actually, I don't know, I, I enjoyed his writing. It was weird. I was always into like the type of sci-fi things that people who were into that also liked Lord of the Rings, but mm-hmm. I'd never really gotten into it until like a year or so ago. If I'm like, I mean, the, the books are great, but if I'm like, I will cry watching the movies. If, I, mm-hmm. if I'm like sitting down and every <laughs> single time, every single time. Well, That's Scott, great, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, this for was really Thank fun. you so much for joining us. Where can us. people find your work? Uh, so. <laughs> Are you on Twitter? Or yeah, I am on Twitter. Let's give you uh, let's give you that Jesuitical bump that you clearly need. I appreciate that. Uh, we we've got a podcast a couple times every week, the NPR Politics Podcast, and also I hang out on Up First uh, once or twice a week. So you can find that on your NPR One app, which we we like to push. Great, excellent. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. time for some listener feedback uh we put out a twitter poll um we asked uh pope francis said we should avoid being christians of the left or the right uh what are some words you use to describe your faith and did we get any good answers zach yeah we got we got some responses one from our friend jake said reality-based first tradition-based how do societal norms help faith evolve versus resistance and adherence to tradition and how it used to be so that's Jake's way of describing the mm-hmm. dichotomy. Uh, Pious Pies, who I've <laughs> that's a great about handle about to click on their account, <laughs> and got, their bio is "In God We Trust" and "In Pies We Crust." <laughs> that's amazing. Their adjectives were hippie Catholic and/or Catholic social teaching zealot. Ah, nice. Steve B said uh, Roman Catholic. Any other adjectives dilute the gospel? Uh, other things people said were Pentecostal, integral, uh, radical. Which was an interesting one. So, oh, is is that interesting to you? No, you can <laughs> be radical on the left and the right. <laughs> You've got uh, John Millibanks mm-hmm. advocating for radical orthodoxy on the right. So, yeah, yeah. I was just saying, maybe you would want to call yourself a radical Catholic. Ah, yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. You should totally be a radical Catholic. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who responded to our Twitter poll. Um, you can follow us at Jesuitical Show. And next, we have a letter from Michelle Kerr of Detroit, Michigan. She said, My boyfriend is Quaker and I'm Catholic. We're constantly working through questions of faith and how it fits into our relationship. Some good Jesuit insight is always appreciated. Do you guys have any insight? I I, I don't even really want to offer any insight other than, like, 
working through questions of faith and how it fits into our relationship, like Michelle, you're doing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, that is the formula, I think. I don't know. So I just want to affirm you and say that, I mean, like, because a lot of people, I'm sure, just kick try the, to like paper kick, over that. Yeah, kick this down the road. Wait until they have babies and be like, oh, I want to raise them <laughs> as Catholics. <laughs> right. So uh, thinking about that in a very adult way is admirable. Yeah. Um, but she also, Michelle also asked that we have a show on this. And I, we've actually we've gotten, gotten this request. Yeah, we've gotten a Catholic times. dating so kind of questions before. we are going to look for an expert in this area. If you know of anyone, listeners, that you've read that has been particularly insightful in this area, let us know and we'll try to get them on the show. All right. Time for a little consolations and desolations. All right. What do you have, Zach? Uh, so my consolation this week actually comes from the interview we taped for this episode. Uh, Scott Detrow mentioned that he was listening to the part in our show where we talked about the influence that college may or may not have had on their faith life. And it made him reflect on his own experience. And I was just like, actually kind of just like blown away that this sounds dumb, but people are listening to us and that they're you know, it's actually it's, prompting. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> reflection thinking about, about their own faith, yeah. you know, because it's like really tough sometimes to, yeah, we're just sitting in this room, like talking to each other <laughs> and assume that it yeah. might not get beyond here. Well, and we're working really hard on mm-hmm. figuring out where God fits in our own life. And mm-hmm. so to see, you know, that, uh, the, the fruits of that mm-hmm. in the audience, I was consoled in my own vocation actually this week. Yeah. That's really beautiful. So, Ashley, what do you got? So I have a consolation, too. I grew up in a very, like, tight-knit neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something, when I moved to New York, I was very afraid of losing. Um, And in some ways I did. But there's this one event every summer um, in Brooklyn. It's It's a fundraiser for the Prospect Park alliance um where everyone gathers it's a potluck you bring your own food it's people from the neighborhood uh there's music and it's just this one event where i actually feel rooted in my community in a a very real and a very fun way so this year me and zach both went because he has moved to the neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) um and it's great it's like you're you're just sharing food and really good company um and giving uh, you know it it's a fundraiser, so you're also giving back to the community. Um, and I use Prospect Park a lot, so I <laughs> should give back to it. Um, so yeah, that was that was really wonderful. And it, it, I don't know, like growing up, my year was very much marked by like neighborhood events, like the Labor Day party and the Fourth of July block party. And so mm-hmm. to have that kind of thing in in Brooklyn and a place where, in some ways, I do feel uprooted, um, is is really consoling. Yeah, finding roots mm-hmm. is always good. Yeah, also um, Run DMC was the special musical guest. Daryl from Run DMC, was the spe- which was amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the consoling um, factor of Zach dancing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, I got to... To Daryl of Run DMC. Invite us to your wedding. I will show you... I got- I got to see some pictures of you guys. You guys look really great and super happy. So yeah, I'm no. glad you were consoled by that. <laughs> it was great. What about you, Olga? So I also have a consolation this week. Um, last week, I spoke to a reverend who had lost her mother at the Charleston shooting and a mother who had lost her son at last year's Pulse nightclub shooting. 
Um, and there were moments in the interview and two in the two separate interviews where both of them kind of broke down crying. And there were several moments where I was just kind of like helping them get through that, even, but still trying to like be a reporter and like write down all these things, but still being very aware of what they were going through. Um, so that was really heartbreaking in the moment, but then kind of hearing how hopeful uh, Maria Wright was, who she's the mother who lost her son, Jerry Wright, last year, just hearing her talk about her Catholicism and how despite all these things that she's been through in the past year, she's still like, God loves me, God is beautiful, and my faith is stronger than ever. Um, and we've talked about in Consolations and Desolations, we often talk about our own struggles with finding God. So seeing that if someone who's literally been through the worst thing a parent can go through and still be super faithful faithful and hopeful is just unbelievably consoling so that was that was really beautiful that's amazing this is why we're not supposed to do it alone yeah supposed to do you know being inspired by someone else's hope is and feeling hope from that is that's great yeah good stuff thanks all that all right roll credits ashley i will Judge Whittacle is brought to you by American Media and produced by Wyatt Massey and Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Adult supervision provided by Carrie Weber. Adverbs this week provided by C. Sorrentino. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whittacle Show. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your fine podcasts. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at judgewitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis and Olga Segura, and we will see you next week.